Our guest today is Elizabeth Bonowitz. She is the David J. Vitali Associate Professor of Learning Science at Harvard University, studying the psychological and computational mechanisms underlying the learning of causal beliefs. In particular, her research combines cognitive development experiments with computational modeling to study the structure of children's early causal beliefs, how evidence and prior beliefs interact to affect children's learning and memory, and how this is affected by social factors with the broader goal of informing educational practice. What does it mean to perform causal reasoning? So causal reasoning is different from associative reasoning, which sometimes people talk about, in that it allows you to think about the structure of events and uh, what would have happened if you hadn't taken what we call an intervention. So in associative reasoning, what we learn is that two events might co-occur, but we don't know why the two events co-occur. A, a might cause B, B might cause A. There might be some common cause C that leads to both of those. When we perform causal reasoning, what we're doing is we're thinking about the structure that underlies those associations and trying to understand. Um, Jim Woodward has an interventionist account of causal reasoning that says, would A have occurred if we hadn't, if we intervened on B or if we hadn't intervened on B? And that tells us something about the actual structure that, that of, of those two events and how they relate to each other. And so causal reasoning is something in that it allows us to do something like counterfactual reasoning. So we can, what I just posed was a counterfactual question. If A had occurred, if we had changed the value of some variable, what, what would we might have expected to happen to some other variable? Um, so when we're performing causal reasoning, what we're doing is we're thinking about um, potentially counterfactual worlds, we're thinking about predictive worlds, if I go to do this, what could happen in the future, um, and we're coming up with explanatory models, so we're trying to understand why A and B relate to each other in the way that they do. So what's, is there a fundamental distinction between uh, a causal um, chain of event and something that is just very reliable, a very reliable correlation. So if we, when we event, when we like observe event A ca uh, causing event B in the world, but we only really kind of observe that as like correlations that always happen. And so we learn because it's so reliable, it seems to be causally of like event A causing event B. So how, is there a fundamental distinction between the two? Sure, um, there is. Um, the fundamental distinction underlies the actual model of what is the truth of the world. So things can be associated without being causal. So for example, the thermometer or the um, outside or the, the barometer in my house, right, can tell me something about um, the pressure and the temperature. And if I look at my thermometer, I can say, um, okay, well, uh, it's, you know, 70 degrees Fahrenheit today or whatever, 27 degrees Celsius, I don't know the conversion. Um, and that tells me that it, if I step outside, it's gonna feel warm and lovely and be a beautiful spring day. But if it's raining and cold and I adjust the, the barometer reading or I adjust the thermometer reading, it's, it's not actually gonna change the temperature outside. 
those things are associated, but it's not that one thing causes um, the other. And so understanding the difference between those is really important for our ability to act in the world and to predict the world and to explain the world and to imagine and pretend in the world. Um, so association is definitely not always uh, causal, even if those two things are very tightly coupled. Um, there's lots of reasons like common cause or B causing A instead of A causing B that can lead to those associations. So knowing that something causes another thing uh, refers to having a model of the rules of how the physical world works and then being able to uh, observe consistent phenomena in that world. Yeah, that's right. And, and having an intuition about Again, the, the Jim Woodward sort of interventionist account, I think, is, is the right intuition. It's understanding something about if I had intervened, if I had, had taken an action to change the, the value of one thing, would that lead to a change in the value of the other thing? So in the case of my um, uh, barometer thing, changing the, the scale on the barometer doesn't actually change the weather, but changing the pressure outside when the pressure outside changes, that will change the barometer. And that tells you something about the direction of causality, um, which is separate from association. And that interventionist account is how we might reason about it. At least that's philosopher, that's a philosophy way of, of talking about it. Mm. And so if we talk about um, children learning cause and effect, that would be directly dependent on how, how sophisticated their model of the world is? Well, children learning about cause and effect is a really interesting and deep uh, question, one that's plagued philosophers for um, hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years. Um, Hume has arguments about association teaching us causality. Others have these sort of interventionist account. I think this story is a, a lot more nuanced than that. So. My belief is that causal reasoning ability in development emerges from three separate abilities, at least. So the first is the fact that um, we feel the proprioception, we feel our own actions, we take, we take actions on the world and we see the outcomes of our actions, like an operant conditioning. Um, and we can we have this experience of causality by virtue of us doing something and something immediately happening. Um, this is sometimes uh, Man de Bra is a philosopher historically who has made this argument about the efficacy of feeling our own force on the world and seeing the outcomes that immediately exist. So very, very young infants have this kind of concept of, of causality, if you will, I'm using air quotes here. Um, but it's in a very limited sense of this sort of domain of feeling my hand moving and doing things. It's, it's what allows us to do things and all animals to do something like operant conditioning where we, we take an action and we see its outcome. A second kind of causality that we experience is something that's sometimes referred to as Mashadian launching or Mashadian causality. So I'm gonna, again, you won't be able to see my hands, but if you imagine like two billiard balls, one smashing into the other, and the ball moving, we have expectations about the sort of temporal constraints around that, the fact that if there's a long lag between one hitting the other and the other moving, maybe it wasn't causal or if that, that they have to come in contact with each other. And again, even young infants have expectations about those kinds of outcomes as being um, causal. And Jonathan Kaminsky is a, a soon to be faculty at CEU and has some very lovely work looking at infants developing understanding of that as opposed to 
other kinds of um, Mashadian like things like in training when objects are stuck together and moving about after they come in contact and so forth. So that's another kind of causality that infants have very, very young. Um, and the question is, are those bound together in a common adult-like concept of causality where we talk about causality and we're thinking about models and understanding? And what um, I and my previous thesis advisor, Laura Schultz and uh, several other colleagues um, uh, went out to test was whether or not those kinds of um, inferences are bound together and at what age that develops. And what Laura and I did with our colleagues was that we showed children a stage. So we showed them a block sliding across the stage to hit a base. And then separately on the stage, there was like a little airplane that lit up and spun around. Um, and the question was, if we showed children repeatedly the block sliding into the base and then the airplane going off, would they understand that taking that they could take the block themselves and slide it into the base to make the airplane go? Would they learn just from the association of the sliding together causing the airplane to go that there was a causal notion there? And Laura and I set out to test toddlers because we thought for sure they're gonna be able to do this. And what we we're really surprised to find is that they weren't. So if they just saw the block sliding across the base and then the airplane going off over and over again, we had a trial where we, we didn't have the airplane go off and we measured, they predictively looked at the airplane so they learned the association. Then the test question is if we hand them the block and we say, can you make the airplane go, what did they do? And what we found is that even though children understood the motion, even if they slid the block into the base, they didn't then predictively look up to the airplane. They didn't, they didn't learn that their own actions, that there's a causal relationship between this contact point and the airplane going off. And this just totally shocked us because we absolutely expected two-year-olds to be able to do this. Now, what was interesting about the study is we had a bunch of conditions that come back to this early core domain stuff I was talking about. So for example, we had a condition where a person was sliding the block across the base. So you've got that, you've got that man de bras operant conditioning. I get that people are agentive and make things work. And when a person was sliding the block across the base, children su succeeded. They took the block, they slid it across and they looked up to the airplane. If the airplane was attached like in a spatio-temporal way to the base, so the block slid in and then the airplane went off, again, now we've got the Mashadian kind of approach. And in, in those cases, the toddler succeeded. They, they connected the block to the base and they looked. So they seem to have these sort of individual aspects of, of causal reasoning in separate domains, but they hadn't yet learned how to associate or bind the, um, the initial uh, 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 correlational data with the fact that they could causally intervene to make something go. So, so four-year-olds can do this and our, and our two-year-olds didn't. The question is what, what learns, like what do children learn or what develops there? And again, we thought the possibility that causal language might be something that children use to bind association with causality, with intervention in this way. So when we said to the toddlers, look, the block makes it go. Look, the block makes it go. Can you make it go? Those are the same kinds of words, the same kinds of phrases. And that might help children learn the relationship between the initial associative events and their power to intervene. And when we used causal language like that, in that case, the toddler succeeded also. 
So that was just one set of studies, and there's been a whole host of other studies. Paul Muntner is another psychologist who's gone on to look at this in looking time studies that has helped us understand a little bit more about the sort of early development of what, what causality is in, in early infancy and whether or not it's bound to this sort of associative information and, um, and what kinds of cues infants might use to then start to develop a, a richer, more uniform sense of, of causality. Um, at least in that domain. In the initial experiment, was the um, the plane not physically linked to the collision? That's right. In the initial, in in the initial, in the in most of the conditions, the plane was like there was like a wire that we had going up, um, but it was not physically attached to the base. Okay, but then if the toddler saw that it was physically tethered, then it, it could learn the causal association. That's right. When it was like attached to the base, like it was like a machete and launch, like a like it it hit and then it would go off. Right. Right. Do you think that that is like because um like the experience that toddlers get in the world is that you don't often see something that is not physically connected, like causing each other to move. Yeah, I mean, they got it when there was an agent sliding the block. So it's not that they, oh, they didn't right. believe that it couldn't be possible. And they got it when causal language was being used. So again, there they got it even though, um, even though the wire was there. So we don't think that the lack of physical connection was totally broke all reasoning because they had it recovered or it worked under these other contexts. So that's a great question. Um, but I do think that, um, the the fact that when it's attached it works is because they're calling on that core um sort of machadian way of reasoning costly that understanding of of contact causality um through sort of launching events or collision events um and whether or not that's something they get because of experience in the world or whether or not that's a sort of built-in um core capacity like like our um the fact that we have expectations about objects being solid and and uh, following continuous trajectories and other kinds of spelky principles as we might call them um i'm ambivalent on i i'm not sure um my intuition is it's probably built in the machadian stuff um but uh i'm more interested in learning and the trajectories than than necessarily characterizing whether it evolved or um happens very early um, but it's a, it's an interesting question. Right. So this implies that, like the, so feeling our actions, getting learning about causality through our actions, and learning about causality through observing like temporal expectations of uh, events, those are governed in the mechanistically different way. That's my intuition, and that's 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 the story that I would tell. Um, uh, and um, the idea that it arises in distinct domains is not something that uh, I think everyone in the field would agree with. Um, many people learning totally bottom up. Um, all experience uh, is, is, is critical for building these things. And that maybe that some people think that there's a common causal um, mechanism that allows us to, to reason over all domains and all events and others might uh, Whereas I predict actually that um, we have probably separate domains of reasoning that come from different kinds of 
ways that we mentally simulate or reason about the world. Like we might have a physics engine as, as Tomer Ullman's lovely work um, might suggest that allows us in physical domains to make certain assumptions. And that's very different from say my causally reasoning about what made mama giggle, um, which is a psychological uh, engine and it's gonna work very differently. And just because I've learned something about association in the physics world, because I have strong prior knowledge or prior beliefs about how to mentally um, simulate forward, say a ball dropping and landing behind a platform, doesn't mean that will necessarily apply to my reasoning about psychological events or biological events. Um, and so what it means to have a common notion of cause, I think is a deep, deep, hard philosophical question, and one that I don't have a good answer to. Um, but it's also not one that I think the field is in wide agreement about either. Mm -hmm. Do you think that some domains uh, are genetically built in and others are learned? Certainly some domains are learned. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think we're genetically mm -hmm. uh, built to reason about um, certain abstract principles that there'd be no reason uh, for us to have evolved. Um, I think it's likely that things like physics expectations of the world are built in um, based on work of Liz Spelke and Feiju and Sukari and um, uh, Rene Ballard-Jean, um, all showing that from very, very, very early, there's there's some core principles or core expectations about the physical world. Um, and that supports reasoning and eventually, you know, develops more richly and, and, and there's accumulation and refinement um, of those, those assumptions. But, um, but I, uh, I, don't, I don't know for sure. It's not a question I tend to focus on since I try to understand the mechanisms of change and learning rather than um, the core starting points. Yeah, that's interesting. Cause I mean, like if you imagine a child that is brought up completely in like a say a virtual reality environment where you can just have completely different rules of physics and then like would they still be able to learn the causal like causal rules relevant to that environment and how much would that even change the development of their brain like it's like if they re return back to the physical world would they perceive stuff differently it sounds like a crazy sci-fi question that you ask, but it's a brilliant one and one that Justin Wood has been looking at um, in his lab along with his colleagues um, uh, and partner. Um, they actually have built these matrix-like boxes, right? Uh, matri oh, I can use matrix references because their movie Resurrection came out again, but um, <laughs> it's like, oh, that just dated me. They literally built these boxes where they rear chicks, um, baby chicks in total, total darkness, total isolation in these boxes, except they control the entire light physical experience of, of their upbringing so that they have, for example, screens in their boxes all around the chick that can violate physical laws or show objects only moving at certain speeds or certain rotations. And because chicks imprint on things and, and want to, to peck at their, their parents, um, you can look at, at what kinds of, of physical principles are sort of requisite or necessary or sufficient in order for chicks to bind um, uh, bind that as an object or to have predictions about the thing that they're looking at as being um, being something that is that is an actual object in the world as well as um, 
oh, I'm trying to remember all their really cool studies, as well as things like how fast the object's moving and, and whether or not that's sufficient for the, the infants, as well as making predictions about what the backside of the object looks like, so what their expectation is. Anyhow, so all this crazy hypothesis, the unethical experiment of like, can we raise humans? Sure, we can't do that. But, but Justin Wood's work is, is trying to do that with chicks to look at exactly these questions of sort of those core, um, core capacities and, and sort of what are the necessary and sufficient conditions of our visual experience that are needed in order to get to some sort of representation of this being following the rules of physics or being an object or following those kinds of things. So it's a great question. I wish I knew Justin's work a little better that I could speak to it more coherently, but. <laughs> yeah, because another question from that is like, are causal beliefs more malleable in early life? So are we, are children as sensitive to learning about causal rules, uh, are more sensitive compared to adults where we're basically understand how the world works? Or is it some, is it some key differences in behavior that um, makes us learn differently after we get older? Yeah, great question. So now I'm going to move away from the deeper philosophical question of like, what is causality? And instead talk about individual causal beliefs, right? Like the belief that being worried can cause a tummy ache, or the belief that, um, uh, you know, seeds grow into plants or other kinds of, of, of sort of causal mechanism stories. And so the question that you ask is, like, whether or not young children are better causal learners than adults, or are they more flexible causal learners than adults? And better and flexible are two different things. So it is absolutely true that as we get older, we form richer expectations about the world, that we learn more about the world, and so we have strong expectations about how the world should work. When the world conforms with those expectations, so when we come across a new experience, but it's it's in, in alignment with past experiences, adults are, are very fast at picking, picking up that new thing because they have a strong, what we call prior expectation, and that guides and fills in the ambiguity of the event or the evidence to allow them to correctly infer the outcome. If the world does not align with our past experiences, that's where adults, it's a little trickier because they have a really strong belief that A must be true. Um, it becomes hard to, to learn or overturn that strong belief in light of new evidence. Um, so adults are really good at explaining away surprising evidence and coming up with alternative reasons why the thing that they're seeing is not, <laughs> is not in conformity with their, with their expectations, also to protect their ego. But it's a good thing that that's the case because you know if I walk into a physics museum and uh, I was told that the magic show is canceled, but then I see a hat floating in midair, I've got one of two choices, right? Either I was wrong and the magic show is really happening, or my entire understanding of physics is wrong and gravity doesn't really exist the way I thought it did, right? It would be crazy if I suddenly, from one little piece of evidence, threw out the whole, you, you know throughout all of my beliefs about that, as opposed to maybe coming up with an alternative explanation. So in that sense, when there's something surprising about the world that's different from, from expectations, children are more flexible. They're more likely to consider weird alternatives and consider um, other kinds of possibilities. Um, and so I can give you two examples of this if, if you want, um, if I'm not being too long-winded. So, so 
Alison Gopnik and Chris Lucas and colleagues um, studied children's causal reasoning about um, what they call blickets or blicket detectors. So you can place a block on a machine and the machine will activate. And then you learn that that kind of block is, is a blicket. Um, but you can have different kinds of rules, causal rules for how machines activate. So for example, you can have a causal rule that says um, any kind of blicket will cause the machine to activate and a blicket is necessary um, to make it activate and it's sufficient. A single blicket will make the machine activate. That's something we'd call a noisy or causal structure in the technical sense. Um, and we can reason about this pretty easily. We have lots of noisy or experiences in our lives. Um, but there's another kind of causal relationship, which is an and or conjunctive causal relationship. And that's that the blicket detector will only work if at least two blickets are on the machine together. Um, and so, you know, in our lives, we're not as familiar with thinking about and relationships, but like your cell phone needs both the battery to be charged and reception in order to work is a good example. So what Allison and Chris and others did, which was really interesting and, and quite clever, was they gave some ambiguous but telling evidence about how this machine worked initially. Um, either it followed this noisy or rule, or it followed this and rule. And then they gave a few new trials with some new objects, and they had children and adults, four-year-old, five-year-old children and adults, infer whether or not this object, the new objects were blickets or not. And what they found was that the children had learned this and rule from the initial observations and were more likely to generalize in the ambiguous case to infer that the block was, was, was also a blicket than adults were. Um, and that was really interesting um, because it showed that children were considering this less likely kind of causal structure and it allowed them to actually learn the, the in this case, correct causal structure more readily than the adults. Um, I followed up on this work uh, myself with uh, Cohen Choi, who's now a faculty at, at Virginia Tech. And um, we had children and adults playing with the, the objects together. So exploring this object together. And what we found was that children on their own replicated the original Gopnik and Luke, Lucas finding. Um, adults on their own, again, didn't learn the right causal structure. When children watched adults play, children still got the right inference, but adults got the wrong one. But when adults watched children play, adults were more likely to get the right inference. So seeing how their children were interacting with the machine helped them think more flexibly like children and have that more adaptive. So that was a very long explanation to say, yes, in some senses, children are more flexible and more variable than adults. That means that when the structure is not like what you would expect, you children may be more likely to stumble upon it by accident. Um, but when the world is as we would expect, adults have that leg up because they have a stronger prior belief that helps guide them into making richer, faster inferences from less data. That's so interesting. Is that partly why we get less creative as we get older? Ooh, I don't know if we get less creative as we get older. So again, I think it depends on how you define creativity, um, which is a whole nother uh, set of stories. Creativity is often linked with innovation. So being able to do something that's useful as well as being outside the box. 
creativity is also building on something from the past in a, in a new way and not just coming up with a completely new thing. And so in many ways, adults can be very creative. They can, they can build on old things. They can develop things that are useful. And depending on how you define creativity, I think um, you might come up with a different um, story about the developmental trajectories of that. Um, but if you're defining creativity in terms of just considering more crazy out there hypotheses, jumping around in your mental space or your memory space um, with, with more dependency, being a little more stuck as an adult, then yes, I think that's exactly right. And that's exactly true. Mm. So in children, their model of the world, how structured is their knowledge um, like implemented in their brain? And how does that compare with the model of the world in adults? Yeah, um, so I don't know how anything's implemented in the brain. I'm not a brain scientist, um, uh, but I do know, but we do talk about in, in our work, we do computational models of, of learning. And so part of that is trying to specify what those representations look like in early childhood versus what they look like in later adulthood and understanding how, how that can develop. And so there are, there are some beautiful papers out of Josh Tenenbaum's group, um, Charles Kemp and Tom Griffiths and Andy Perfors have also uh, worked with Josh and built out on these ideas about the idea that the less evidence you have, the simpler your models or your representations of the world um, can be. Um, there's sort of a Occam's razor or a simplicity bias that, that, that is sort of useful to model or to think about. Um, and as you get to have a richer, more and more knowledge, you have sort of richer and more complex structures to help explain that data. And so for example, um, when you're a very, very young child and you just have a few observations of animals, um, your inferences about animals might be best um, captured by a representation that just clusters animals in, in groups in like a two to a three dimensional space. You could even get away with a two dimensional space if you're talking about things like Supreme Court justices and trying to explain the best way to capture their structures like left to right might be a, a two dimensional space. But you know maybe in a three dimensional space, you just kind of cluster animals. As you get older and you learn more about animals and how they relate, or you learn more about the, you know, you have, um, more about functions and biology and taxonomies, um, a better structure to capture the way it, adults make inferences is more of a taxonomic structure that looks like a tree. That's a much more complicated structure. And so that's a case in which we can think about um, having less evidence means that, that simpler sort of structures can capture the data just as well. And so you might as well go with those simpler structures. Whereas as you gain more knowledge about the world, you can develop richer structures. Um, but all of this really depends on like the domain and the specific representations that you're talking about and what the experiences of that individual child are. I mean, there's lots of lovely, interesting cross-cultural work um, dating back 20, 30 years, like Coley and Medine and others that show that, for example, even reasoning about biological kinds and animals for kids who live in rural areas versus cities looks very different because kids who are out in the nature all the time running around have different ways of, of thinking about the structure of, of how these things relate and might be more logically to ecologically group items saying, 
you know, this particular kind of plant goes with this particular kind of animal because that animal eats that plant. Or reason about sort of um, food chains and the idea that like toxins could spread, spread through a food chain. So like a bear and honey might go together um, because bears eat honey, um, even though they're, you know, very, very, very different things. If you're just thinking, you know, if you're a city kid and just thinking like, uh, that's an animal and honey, you know, is a byproduct of, <laughs> of a, of a bee-based, plant-based, <laughs> right? So, so those are all sorts of ways in which representations really are going to depend on your experiences and, and, and the richness of those is, is truly developmentally different, but that's because different experiences have happened to kids and adults. Mm. Yeah. It's the, so it's the, like, experience as you get more experience and more accumulate more evidence of the world you grow those trees and the, the differentiate more until you get a more sophisticated structure of the world and yeah if, makes, yeah yeah if the tree is the right structure that's the that's what you would do I mean if it actually is clusters then hmm. you would just be more confident in your clusters or they would be maybe narrower have clear boundaries or something but but hmm. yes oh yeah and like this is a common example of uh like children, if you ask them, do worms have bones? Um, most would overgeneralize and say, yeah, they do, because the animals that they observe all have bones and worm is an animal. And so it must, should also have bones, which mm -hmm. is, <laughs> which, which uh, fits in well with the idea that you're just, um, as you get more evidence, you learn about animals that don't have bones and you sort of um, grow those trees to uh, fit in, um, the evidence that you observe in the world. Um, so you mentioned some experiments. So I want to talk about um, the behavioral experiments. But before that, so you are a cognitive psychologist. Um, what is the level of explanation that you are striving for? So like, what does it mean to understand the psychology of something? Yeah, that's a great question. I like to go back to Marr. Um, David Marr argued about three levels of, of questions. So there's the computational level, trying to understand what is the problem that the mind is solving and, and why is it solving it? Um, there's the algorithmic level. So like what's the process or the set of rules that the mind is carrying out in order to, to come about uh, with a solution of that? And then there's the implementation level. So how, how might that actually be carried out in, in, in the brain? Um, and so my work primarily is at the, the top two levels. I'm trying to define what I think the problems or the goals are that the mind is solving when it's learning um, and how it might be that we carry out what would otherwise be computationally intractable <laughs> um, uh, computations. Um, so, so I use Bayesian models in my work and um, uh, because I care about that the problem that Bayesian models are solving, which is how do we update our beliefs given the data that we observe? It's a learning problem. And the problem with Bayesian models is that there's an infinite space of possible rules or solutions or answers that a learner could come up with. And so that becomes what we call computationally intractable. So um, they can't, a, a child, let alone adult, couldn't possibly go through an infinite space. And so the question is how might you actually what are the actually processes of, of learning that, that could carry out that kind of um, computation? And, and so I use ideas from machine learning and computer science 
that where folks have come up with interesting approximations to solve that problem um, that don't require the full sort of computational um, impossible uh, um, power um, to go through the full hypothesis spaces. So that's sort of part of the levels of questions that I ask. Um, but I'm also interested, I'm, as a learning scientist in a graduate school of education, I'm also interested in understanding the practical applications of, of what, it, what it means when learners come to the table with different individual differences or different expectations about school or informal learning environments. And what does that mean for how we wanna structure schools or informal learning environments or what we wanna tell parents? Um, and so a lot of my work is also in sort of understanding not just the lab-based, not just the theory of how this works, though I think that's critically the first place to start, um, not just the lab-based experimental results that provide evidence for that theory, but also understanding how those extend in the wild, as it were, um, and have real implications for, for supporting learning. So I'm asking, I think, questions at all of those levels simultaneously. And I do have a little bit of work looking at, at brain response. Um, so maybe a little bit of implementation stuff, but I'm not actually um, trying to do um, anything structurally and descriptive in my work um, when it comes to brain-based um, stuff. Because you mentioned a lot, and we can talk about a lot of things. <laughs> um, but firstly, so you mentioned some behavioral experiments already. Um, how do you design experiments to test uh, causal beliefs in children experimentally? Yeah, so I think it depends on what about causal beliefs I'm trying to test. So if I'm trying to test how children's, um, like what allows children to revise their causal beliefs, then I will design experiments that might involve uh, initially assessing what their beliefs are in a particular domain, maybe asking them questions, what do you think makes X happen, um, providing evidence. Um, so, oh, let's see what happens when this character does this or showing a storybook or what happens when the block goes on the box um, and then reassessing their beliefs. And I, I like to do what I call mini microgenetic experiments. So there's this, this idea in developmental science, you know, that often we study, if we want to characterize learning, we might study it at time A, and then, you know, like a year later, study it at time Z. Um, and we get an understanding of change by doing that because we see that what, what's different between A and C, but we can't characterize the process of change. It's hard to see whether A went to B to C or whether A jumped to Z and back to A and then back to Z and all around. And, and so understanding that process of change as we're trying to be more precise in our models is really important. So folks like Siegler and, and others have developed microgenetic studies where they, they, they look at children across more time points. And within my own work, I'm really interested in computationally characterizing learning. And so I'll often provide one piece of evidence and then ask them again about something. And then one more piece of evidence and then ask them again. And I call that a mini microgenetic experiment because I can really look at like, how, how are their beliefs changing over the course of this very small time force, but after each new piece of evidence, how is it unfolding in time to really get a much clearer characterization of how our mind moves through a space of possibilities and, and eventually lands on point Z. Mm -hmm. And um, you also mentioned like looking for behavioral cues, like uh, seeing if the 
infant uh, looks up at the airplane as a cue for uh, whether it understands the causal relationship, but how accurate are these cues? Um, That's a great question. Yeah, so so I guess I didn't specify the behaviors that I'm actually coding in these studies, and it depends on the age of the, the, the subject that I'm testing, and I test infants all the way up through adults, so you can get different outcomes there. The simplest thing to do is to ask a child if they can talk, right? What do you think caused that? Um, the challenge is that even with adults, sometimes we think we have an explanation for something or what we think is going on, and that doesn't reflect the full depth of what's happening in the mind, or we can we delude ourselves. We think we have an explanation for something and we don't. Um, we can ask children to make inferences. What do you think um, will happen to make predictions about the future? And that can characterize or help us understand a little more about what they think is caused. So if I say, if I put block A on the machine, will it go or will it not go? Then that will tell me something about their beliefs about A. We can ask and look at their surprise. So we can say, we put A on the machine and we see it activated or it didn't activate. Are they surprised? And we can measure surprise in a number of ways. We can just ask them if they're surprised. We can look at the, whether they look longer at, at the event, which is sometimes a measure in early infancy. We can look at whether or not they're more motivated to explore or play more with the thing that was surprising. And that's work that I've done. And Christine Laguerre and others have also used that kind of method. I have recently been working with Katarina Begush, um, who was a postdoc of mine and is now going to be um, uh, a faculty at University of Copenhagen using theta, which is an uh, electrical signal in the brain that is a longer range brainwave that we think is um, sensitive to expectation of information and active learning. Um, and theta can get at measures of, do I expect information is about to happen? And so you can use theta as a measure of expectation of causality or confounding, because if they think something, they're about to learn something, you'll see theta increase. Um, you can look at pupillometry response, which I've also done. So your pupils dilate when you're surprised. And so using special kinds of eye trackers that can measure that dilation, it's a much noisier measure, um, but it, it's another way that you can measure surprise. Um, and you can look at learning outcomes. So if you see something, um, do they now start changing their beliefs or changing their responses on the task? So like all of these kinds of measures are ways that you can start to get behaviorally at what's going on inside. Um, and we use all of them and often in combination um, to help us hone in on what we think is going on inside, um, inside their little minds. So I'm really interested in um, the computational models. So uh, how, how exactly do you use computational models to study uh, causal beliefs? What do the models look like? Are they neural networks or a set of equations? Yeah, great question. So Judea Pearl and others have come up with a way of thinking about representing causality known as causal graphical models. So you can literally write down variables as little circles and draw little arrows between little circles and show the relationships that you think exist there. And the arrows aren't enough. You need something about the parameterization and the weights. Um, but that starts representing something that we call causal structure. And with those causal graphical models, all sorts of conditional rules fall out. So for example, I know that if uh, I have a particular kind of causal structure, let's say a causal chain where A causes B and B causes C. 
and I hold B constant, then I can draw, like I say, I know the value of B and I'm gonna keep B true, okay? Then I say, does learning something about A change my guess about what the outcome of C will be? And so for example, under this kind of causal structure, under these kinds of Markov blankets, using this kind of formal way of thinking, I know that A is not dependent, on, sorry, C is not dependent on A because I, I'm holding B and because C is only dependent on B, um, uh, I know something about that. So different kinds of causal structures have different kinds of dependencies and these, that kind of causal, the kinds of causal inferences in the way that you write your math out, the statistics and the probability that follows from that um, comes from, from those kinds of causal graphical models and the rules that, that, uh, that describe them. So that's one aspect of, of modeling, but, but a lot of the modeling is probability theory. Um, so saying, okay, I think that it's not just that there's one truth to the world, but that there's multiple possible explanations, right? Um, I don't know which is right because the data that I've observed is noisy or ambiguous. And my goal as a learner is to try to figure out the structure that has given rise to the data that I've observed. And that requires doing what we call reverse inference. So I observed the data and now I have to figure out the cause that led to that data. Um, and that reverse inference process, you could, you could think about that in probabilistic terms of saying, what's the probability of some particular rule, let's say H, we'll call it a hypothesis, given the data that I've observed, we'll say D. What's the probability of H given D? And the solution to that problem is just Bayes' rule. So the answer is the probability of H given D, mathematically, it's just a truth, is the probability of D given H times the probability of H over the probability of D. Let me put that in actual English. The probability that some rule is actually true given the data is my prior belief that that rule was true a priori initially times the likelihood that I think that rule could have generated that data. Like how likely would I, how likely is that data given that that rule is actually true? And then I normalize that to just make sure that it, that it follows probabilistic rules. So the combination of Bayes' rule with causal graphical models, because causal graphical models tell you which things are conditional or dependent on which other things, allows you to really characterize a lot of the world. And then the hard part is actually describing the models that you think in any particular domain are right. So actually describing what do I think the causes are and the variables are, and what are the actual parameters of those things. And, and starting to write all that down and to do inference over all of that, if you're a learner or if you're a modeler is, is sort of the same problem. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of my models fit into that kind of category. Um, and then the models get more and more complicated because you can have hierarchical models and you can have uncertainty at many levels, but the math, the math stays the same. So we use those kinds of models to help say, I think this is the truth of the world and it's gonna make a quantitative prediction about if learners are using this kind of reasoning, what their behavior should look like. And then we can measure learners and see if their behaviors do the things that the models do. Um, and that tells us something about the representations that we think learners have and the kinds of reasoning um, that they're doing over those representations. So with these computational models, you get some uh, experimentally testable predictions that you can then go and do the experiments to see if, but to validate your model. 
which then gives mechanistic insights into how uh, causal structures are being learned. Exactly. And importantly, we can say, well, what if the model didn't have this node here? Or what if we thought the learner wasn't considering this factor or this other factor? And those models will make different predictions. And then by looking at which models best match to the, the data, we can, we can see, we, we can sort of characterize, okay, we think this learner actually isn't considering this node because if they did, they would have predicted B, but they predicted A. And that allows us to do that kind of comparison and, and, and get a better feel of characterizing what we think are the representations that we're doing inferences over as, as early as infancy. Yeah. You mentioned uh, educational practice. Um, what do you think is the biggest problem in the current education system? And how is your work given, any, given insights into improving this? Uh, there's so many, there's so many problems in the U.S. system. I I uh, we're coming off of a lot of uh, tension from the Supreme Court and from state-based uh, rulings that are are basically anti-data, anti-evidence, anti-education for kids. But let let me give a let me give a more generic answer that's closer to the research that I actually do. I mean. So our school system is, is not well designed in the United States to support building curious, innovative thinkers. Um, it's not well supported for many reasons. Um, the first is that funding and policy is linked towards test scores. And as soon as you require sort of performance for a particular test, then you, you change the metric of what you're trying to teach. You teach for the test. Um, and that's not on teachers. Teachers are under-supported and understaffed. They're constrained by regulations that make their school day challenging to allow for open-ended discovery and exploration. Um, it's not entirely constrained by administrators and the, the superintendents and the principals that run those school systems. They are guided by these funding requirements that they have to meet certain bars or certain standards. Um, the challenge is that you need assessment because you also need to know if something's working. And so and so the school system, the, the interplay between policy and funding and assessment creates all sorts of um, uh, tricky utilities that that make actually allowing for open ended exploration and discovery and early education in particular I think much more limited than it should be. And as a result, what I think is that we're teaching children how to sit down and be quiet and to focus and take tests. Um, and uh, we're not teaching children to be, to, to maintain the curiosity that they're inherently come with and to maintain open-ended exploration and to learn how to learn and to learn how to discover and to learn how to be empowered and independent thinkers. Um, and, and so I think this is a, a huge challenge. I think there's all sorts of challenges also in our school system in terms of disparities between um, uh, rich and poor districts, um, between how we handle gifted children who um, Many, many gifted children, especially from um, underrepresented communities, are overlooked or mis misidentified as troubled children, um, uh, even though what they need is supports and they need support structures. Gifted children oft often have many, many emotional challenges because 
their emotional development can't keep up with other aspects of their cognitive development. And our school systems, I mean, even in Massachusetts, which is a very forward thinking state compared to many states in the United States, doesn't even recognize gifted programs as something. So there's just, there's so many places where there's sort of catastrophic <laughs> problems with our school system. Um, so it's hard to pick one. Um, but, but I would say in watching my own children who are 10 and eight um, as a parent, um, watching their lack of motivation and their frustration with school um, and feeling like they don't, they're not empowered to drive their own learning a little bit has really sucked the love of learning out of them to some extent. My daughter said to me just last night, I love math when I get to do it on my own terms. Can you, you give me numbers? I will add them and multiply them and do them all day long. I love it. I love it when it's a challenge. But when I get to school and I like have to do the worksheet, I don't want to do it. Like they're telling me I have to do it. Right. And, and I get it. And, and that's hard. And that balance is hard because, you know, uh, we don't have a good solution for that right? These, these are harder problems than it sounds. You can't just stop having assessment or stop having worksheets. And so th that's a broader problem with school. How my work speaks to that, it doesn't. Um, <laughs> I, I do, I am interested in curiosity um, and, and what it means for learners to be driven, uh, to want to be exploratory, to want to discover new things. And in some of my work, I found the critical importance of rapport between a child and a teacher in terms of understanding, do they get me? Do they, are they choosing the right thing for me? Children learn a lot more from that. They're a lot more motivated. They'll persist longer. They'll be more curious when they think the teacher knows something about them, about the importance of empowerment. So the child feeling like if they're allowed to do something and that they, if they do something, they're successful, that leads to more exploratory behaviors, more curiosity. And that's important for the school system so that children feel empowered. Um, about the trade-off between teaching and learning and the fact that teachers can only demonstrate so much, but often when a teacher teaches something, there's an implicit assumption on the behalf of the learner that they're teaching me this because that's all there is to learn. And so that might limit further exploration and discovery unless the teacher presents it as a pedagogical question or an open-ended prompt or models curiosity on, on their own sake. Um, and also the power of children asking questions. So we have research showing that if you, um, coming out of Allison Mackey's lab, that if you encourage children to ask questions throughout a 10 week training study, as opposed to having them sit and listen quietly to the science content that we're trying to teach them, that those children who practice asking questions are more likely to say, hey, I'd I value new information more. I wanna pay more for that information. They learn more content. Um, there's all sorts of benefits there. And so again, thinking in classrooms about really offering opportunities for children to be asking questions as well as modeling that kind of curiosity and question asking on behalf of the teachers. So there's some overlap. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be quite so pessimistic um, between my work on curiosity and motivation and learning and question asking and teaching and um, what I think would be useful in the schools, but I haven't um, done direct school interventions yet. Yeah, no, that's very fair. I wonder if there are even any fun ways of doing assessments where you can assess children's abilities on a reliable benchmark way without it being just like sapping the learning, the fun of learning out of kids. 
Um, Kids love demonstrating what they know. I think, I think the context and the framing is, is really critical. They love teaching um, other kids too. Um, so, so there are ways, I think, to create assessments and to measure knowledge, um, but, uh, but it's time intensive and we don't have the financial resources because we underfund early childhood education. We underfund public education in, this, in the United States, at least. Um, and uh, teachers don't have the resources that we need and people don't go into teaching because they get paid a terrible salary and work 70 hours a week and it's a thankless um, job. Mm-hmm. So these things could be fixed if we invested in it. Yeah, and in, in Japan, they have a system where like the whole class would spend the whole uh, session just on one problem where you, where the teacher starts with the problem and um, each student would go up on the board and sort of write down their solution to it. And then they'll get like, a, like they put their name on it. So it's like their proof. And then, so each kid would do that and you sort of explore the whole problem as a class. And then, um, but that really, it's, it's really nice because you, you feel like you're contributing to the problem and you're working with the problem instead of just being taught uh, all of this. And so, um, yeah, I, I think there are definitely better ways of teaching math and all these stuff. Um, but one last question, what advice do you have for young scientists? Um, advice for what? <laughs> I, think, I, I think in general, I guess primary advice I would give young scientists is uh, keep an open mind. And when results are different from what you expected, that's where the most interesting and important discoveries take place. Um, and I guess the second piece of advice I have is read, 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 and then read some more. Um, there's so much that's been done. There's so much interesting thoughts that have been had and reading will not constrain your creativity or constrain your ideas, it will only open them up to new ideas and new possibilities and new ways of binding um, one thing to another that is innovative and 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 creates new opportunities for discovery. Um, so be okay with, with uh, surprising unexpected results because that's where the learning happens um, and uh, read as much as possible. Um, I guess, One other piece of advice I would say is that science is a collaborative sport. We work together and using other people is like reading. Um, You can't know and learn everything. So collaborating with experts in other areas is a way to also broaden your research program and learn more and make sure you're asking innovative questions that you can contribute to the most that will be most likely to have impact and actually um, help advance our understanding. We should learn from children when we see surprising results. Elizabeth, <laughs> <laughs> this was um, really fun. Thanks so much for coming on this podcast and good luck with your research. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.